Amen. Amen. Death was arrested and my life began. That's a great line, isn't it? Great song. Great song to sing. Thank you for that praise team. We appreciate you drawing us into worship through song today. It's beautiful. Now we're going to worship in the Word. So take your Bibles, if you will, to Mark chapter 11. And we're going to continue our study. We're in the last six chapters of Mark in this last section of the book of Mark as a focus on Jerusalem. Jerusalem. And so this is a this has been a wonderful study for me in my walk with the Lord. That first section of Act 1 was Galilee, and Jesus is kind of on the move as a miracle worker, and everybody is blown away by Jesus. And they're like, hey, you are the Messiah. And then Act 2 shifts, and that's on the road, on the road to Jerusalem. And Jesus begins to change his tone and his message to his followers, and he says to them, listen, I'm going to a cross, I'm going to die, I'm going to rise from the dead. And he said, if you want to follow me and you really understand what it means to follow, you're going to have to take up your cross and you're going to have to deny yourself and you're going to have to follow me. And so that whole shift is very confusing to the disciples. And then you get to the shift of Acts 3, Act 3, and that's where we are now in Mark 11, and that is Jerusalem. And it is the paradox of the life of Jesus as Messiah King. The paradox. This is the focus of the fact that the king comes into Jerusalem to die. It's a paradox. He comes into Jerusalem. He goes to the temple where he should be reigned as king. He, he literally designed the temple. He made the temple. He, he was everything the temple was about. And what's so incredible there in Acts 11, or Mark 11, verse 11, is he comes down on the Palm Sunday. They're waving branches. They're doing everything to exalt him as king. He walks into the temple. This is what Mark wants you to see. He walks into the temple. He looks around, and he leaves. It's so anticlimactic for the whole book. It's almost like, wait a minute, you're supposed to now be the king. He walks in the temple. Nobody recognizes him as king. He's coming home to his throne. Nobody cares. And that's, that's the way Mark's painting this picture of what a true follower of Christ will do. He'll be misunderstood. He'll still continue to go to a cross. He'll still suffer. And he will ultimately show the paradox of the Messiah King. And so that's kind of the outline of the book of, of Mark. I keep saying Acts, but there's three Acts. And I want to I enter in now to this last act here. Stand with me now. In Mark 11, we're going to read verses 1 to 11. I want you to see the anticlimacticness of this. And that's where I want you to focus as we read it. As they approached Jerusalem of Bethphage and Bethany near the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village opposite you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, on which no one yet has ever sat. Untie it, bring it here. If anyone says to you, Why are you doing this? You say, The Lord has need of it. And immediately he will send it back here. They went away and found a colt tied at the door, outside in the street. They untied it. Some of the bystanders were saying to them, what are you doing untying the colt? They spoke to them just as Jesus had told them, and they gave him permission. They brought the colt to Jesus, put their coats on it, sat on it, and many spread their coats in the road, and others spread leafy branches which they had cut from the fields. Those who went in front and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming of the kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. Jesus entered Jerusalem. He came into the temple. After looking around at everything, 
he left for Bethany with the twelve since it was already late. You may be seated. I've entitled this message today, Right Person, Wrong Mission. Right Person, Wrong Mission. And I want you to focus on the difference of attitude between Jesus and his followers. He now comes into Jerusalem. He's brought with him a whole host of followers from Galilee. They're coming to the Feast of Passovers. That was their highest celebration in the country every year around the month of April. And so this was a very big time. So lots of these Galileans are following Jesus into Jerusalem along, as long, along with his disciples and then many of the enthusiastic people in Judea and Jerusalem that believed he was the Messiah. And so he gets on this donkey and he makes what we call the triumphal entry. It's really an untriumphal triumphal entry because the fact is it failed in what his purpose was to say, I'm the king. And so they know, this, this, this people who begin to quote Psalm 118 know who he is and they believe he is the Messiah. They believe he's the Christ, he's the son of David. And so they shout the very words like Hosanna. They're recognizing who he is. The problem is, here's the problem, and this is where my heart went this week. The problem is, while they see him as Messiah correctly, and they recognize his identity, they have incorrectly recognized his mission. The right person, the wrong mission. They see him as a savior, of course, but they don't get his mission. His mission is to save them from their sinful condition. They couldn't get that. They, they, didn't, they, they couldn't fathom that. So what they thought is, you want to save us, Hosanna? That's what the word means. You want to save us? We want to be saved from Roman oppression. That's what we want. We want to be saved from Roman oppression. We're overtaxed. We're mistreated. We're tired of Caesar. We're tired of Herod. We're tired of Pilate. We want a political deliverer. We want a military warrior to come and give us our freedom. That's what we want. So their idea of a savior is, save us against the oppressive Rome. God's idea of a savior is, you've got a sinful condition. I need to save you from that. Now, when I began to really capture Act 3 in my heart, it occurred to me that when they didn't get it, when they have this idea of Messiah, they know he's the Messiah, they believe in him, when he didn't fulfill what the mission was, they thought the mission should be, they rejected him. So in seven days, this is how long it takes you to lose somebody. Seven days, okay? The first day on Palm Sunday, they're crying out, hail him, hail him. The seventh day, they're crying out, nail him, nail him because he wasn't who they thought he was in terms of his mission. And add to that the pain of his followers. Every one of them abandoned him. So he goes to his death alone and rejected, which is all prophesied, but ultimately you see the pain that Jesus carries, but at a deeper level, it takes one week for everybody to turn on him. They finally get what's going on. He is not coming as a military leader. Now, you don't really wrestle with that as much because you understand the rest of the story, but what I want to do is I took that and I started reflecting on that this week 
And I thought the best way to do this passage as it introduces Act 3 is this. And I asked myself this question. What do you do when God doesn't do what you think he should do? What do you do when God doesn't do what you think he should do? That's, that's what I wanted to answer as I got into this text here this morning. Because the truth is we all wrestle with that at some point in our life. We have these hopes. We have these expectations with God and what we want God to do and what we expect God to do. And a lot of times it doesn't match up with reality. And so we have what he does, what we expect, that equals unmet expectations in our life. Unmet expectations. And at that moment we have to wrestle with, what are we going to do? What are we going to do in our walk with God? How are we going to handle that? Now, I want to speak to you from my heart here today because these things really became passionate for me as I thought about that, wrestling with that. We, we wrestle with that in our relationships, so maybe it's a little under, easier to understand in our relationships as well. Sometimes this happens. We have a desire we want to see fulfilled through this person we have a relationship with, and our desire isn't met. And we have these, maybe sometimes we have unrealistic expectations or maybe it's just the fact that when they deliver, we're unsatisfied with what they deliver. And so these unmet expectations create this kind of discouragement that we don't really put words to a lot of times. Sometimes we do, but a lot of times we don't. For example, take marriage. When you get married, you ever seen a wide-eyed wonder newlyweds? I mean, it is an incredible thing, isn't it? Don't you wish you could just go back to that moment in time where everything is wonderful? It is like a Disney movie. You know, you, th you see them get together, and it's like Cinderella, and it's just incredible. There they are, Cinderella and Prince Charming, riding in the horse-drawn carriage back to the palace, and it's going to be eternal bliss, right? And then another, about five years after the marriage, then there's another Disney movie, Beauty and the Beast. That's the next one. And then another five years, there's another Disney movie. We call it Shrek 2. And two ogres go at each other in the marriage. And that's exactly the kind of thing of what happens. These unmet expectations occur in our marriage, and we start to see these things, and we start to question them and wonder, what in the world's going on here? That can happen not just in marriage. It can happen with families. It can happen with friends. It can happen with coworkers. Wherever you have a relationship, you run the risk of unmet expectations. So my heart was heavy on that as I thought about this this week. What do you do when you have unmet expectations with God, when God lets you down? What do you do when God doesn't do what you think he should do? All right, so I want to I talk to you about that. I have four points. I realized in the last service I'm only going to be able to cover three, so I'm going to do three points here this morning and forget the last one uh, just figure that out on your own. Okay, that'll be a good one for you later. Okay, let's go on. Number one, number one. Here's, here's one I just want to kind of enter into this. Number one, focus on, what, focus on doing what he asks rather than focusing on your questions. This, this is helpful, okay? Okay, what do you got going on here? He's, he, Jesus is really caught up with this donkey. He spends six verses talking about this donkey, You've got to step back and you've got to say, okay, I don't get all this. And sometimes you just got to not ask the questions and just do what he's asking. So he says to these two disciples, get this donkey for me. 
And he tells, them, he tells them the exact steps to get it. Now, the reason Jesus is so big on this donkey is because this is a huge fulfillment of Scripture that's 1,800 years old. Go all the way back to Genesis 49, and he has to write, write on a donkey. Okay? So you go back even into Zechariah 9.9. He will come into Jerusalem on a donkey. I mean, the prophecies are there. So first of all, he knows he's got to fulfill Scripture, and so that's why he's big on this donkey. Number two, he knows the donkey is a sign of peace. A horse is a sign of war. Now remember that, okay? Number three, the donkey is a sign of a humble servant and sacrifice because that's what a donkey spends his life doing, sacrificing in terms of everything he provides is servant-like. And Jesus is not going to conquer militarily. He's going to conquer by submission. He's going to conquer by serving, okay? And then number four, this donkey's not sat upon. Without going into a whole lot of detail of that, that is a fascinating study in itself. Get a donkey that's unbridled and no saddle on it. Never been sat on. You'll see it there, tied. Why? What's the big deal about that? Well, there's a couple things. First of all, um, if a king would come into a city to bring peace, he'd have to sit on a donkey that no one has ever sat on because he's the king. It's royalty. It's a sign of royalty. The second thing is, if you were traveling with a donkey and your lambs got tired that you brought to sacrifice at the Passover week, you could put them on your donkey. But the rule was, if it was a sacrificial lamb, the donkey could never be yoked or never be used as a burden for anything else but that sacrificial animal. That's what it means to not sit up. So what was Jesus? He was the king and he was the sacrificial lamb. See the, the paradox of that? He's the king and he's the sacrificial lamb. And so that's kind of the uh, background of that. I just wanted you to see that. So with that background then, these verses emphasize the accuracy of what Jesus said to these two, two disciples and what they experienced right down to the smallest point. Go, and you will see this donkey. He'll be tied on a street. He will never have been broken. He will have no saddle on him, no bridle on him. Bring him back to me, and if anybody asks, tell him the Lord has need of it. Now, that phrase, the Lord has need of it, is kind of a password phrase. I believe, there's a couple views on this. I'm not going to explain them all, but I believe that Jesus planned this because he goes to Jerusalem three times a year for three festivals, this festival, I think he planned beforehand. He went to a guy, set this whole deal up, and said, I'm going to be getting a donkey that's never been sat on. I'm going to send my two disciples. And the password is, the Lord has need of it. So you just say that, when you say that password, they'll say, take it. It's kind of a cool little thing there when you've got a little password going on between Jesus, this man, and his disciples. Now, what surprises me is to do two disciples go and do it without question. Go, and they go. Find the donkey, they find the donkey. The donkey has to be unbridled, they find the unbridled donkey. Take it and leave. And if anybody questions you, just say, the Lord has need of it. That's the password. And they do exactly what Jesus said. They find it exactly like that had. Now, now I was thinking about this, and I was thinking about the fact that wouldn't you have a few questions if you're one of those disciples about how strange that is? What do you want a donkey for, and what, what is the deal with all of this? Now, there's lots of reasons for it, but it would be, it'd be like me telling you today, okay? As soon as you get out of here, I want you to go to AutoZone. 
I want you to go behind the second counter. There'll be a set of keys there to a Toyota Tundra, and on the keychain, it'll say rendezvous. I want you to go ahead and just take that set of keys. I want you to go out in the parking lot. There'll be a black cherry Tundra on the four-spark parking space. I want you to get in it. And then if anybody comes up and says, hey, what are you doing? Take that truck. Pastor Rob has need of it. I mean, how well is that going to go, you know? You'd have a lot of questions. And what, what strikes me here is they don't ask any questions. They do exactly what they're told. Now, I love this. By doing exactly what they're told without even understanding what they're doing, they experience the wonder of Jesus saying something that's going to happen in the future. Now, listen to that. They experience the wonder of Jesus saying something that is going to happen in the future, and it went down exactly like he said. And the only reason they did it is they had confidence. They didn't question it. Jesus said it, and they just did it. It's so simple, but this is the way you've got to approach life sometimes when God doesn't do what you want him to do. See, Jesus knows who he is, but he wants you to recognize, you know who I am. And only as they went, only as they went in obedience were they able to see the truth of his word. That's an important thing. Only as you go in obedience to his word with all the questions you got do you experience Jesus in your life. You go without a lot of understanding. You go through a lot of things you don't, don't make sense to you. But only as you go are you able to see the truth of his word. Could Jesus trust you with something he asked you to do? Just go do it. When you read his word, you just take his word and you say, I'm going to go do that. I am going to go do it. Or if he asked you to stop doing something, would you stop doing? Because he's told you some things he wants you to stop doing. Would you take him at his word and say, I'm going to stop it? Because he wants me to stop it. He's told me to stop it. I need to stop that. See, what, what I'm saying to you is we get to see his promise fulfilled in our life in a personal experience with Christ as we trust him. It's a beautiful, it's a beautiful thing. But you only get to see it when you step out with all the, without all the questions being answered and just saying, I'm going to do it. I'm going to do this in my life. I know God wants me to do it. I'm going to do it. I know God doesn't want me to do this. I'm not going to do it. And that's how you experience God. Now, the other option is not to do anything I just said and wait it out. Just wait it out and, and not do anything he asks. And then one day he said, I'm going to return. He said it. Okay, he said it to you. I'm going to return. But you never trusted him. You never trusted him. He wants us to trust him now before the final day. He's telling you a lot of things are going to go down in the future. Now, I'm talking just about the big day, but there's a lot of other things that go down in your future too. But I want you to trust me now, not wait to get to the end and see, well, let's see how it all works out. That's, that's a simple point, but I wanted you to hear that because it spoke to my heart. Number two, let's do this one. Look for what he is doing rather than for what he is not doing. The, the way I got this point from the scriptures was the fact that Jesus said they, 
or verse 7 said, they brought the colt to Jesus, put their coats on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their coats in the road, and others spread leafy branches or palm branches, which they had cut from the fields. Those who went in front and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. Now, what, what's going on here? The disciples see him get on a donkey. But the truth of the matter is, he's declaring himself a king without ever getting on a horse. He's skipping the horse. You say skipping the horse? Yeah, he's skipping the horse. What he should do on Palm Sunday, which they've done for 150 years of Israel's history, if you believed you were the Messiah, you went on Palm Sunday and Palm Sunday only. You got up at the Passover because it's the release of their freedom from Egypt, so let's get our release from the freedom of Rome. You got up on a horse, a white steed, and you got at the top of the Mount of Olives. You had your army behind you. Rome was waiting there in the walls of Jerusalem to take you on, and you fought a battle to your death. And man after man after man on Palm Sunday would get up on that mountain and say, I am the Messiah. I am the Messiah. He'd have all his followers. The Hasmonean dynasty is known for it from 150 B.C. all the way to the time of Christ. And then even after, Judas of Galilee tried it. Thutis tried it. Simon of Perea tried it. Athrongis tried it. All of them tried it and got on a white steed and said, I am your deliverer. I am your Messiah here at this Passover. I'm going to free you from Rome. And then they would fight the Roman soldiers and of course, you know, for 150 years in the Hasmonean dynasty, they lost every one of those battles to Rome. They never were able to win as the Messiah. This is why they're throwing down the palm branches. The palm branches in Israel to this day are the stars and stripes of their country. It's like our United States flag is a call to war sometimes. We honor the flag because of the call to war. Theirs would be the palm branches. They would throw down palm branches before the Messiah King, and they would let the king ride across on a white steed, and they would hail him as the Messiah. This is all the background that maybe you don't get when you just read the Scriptures. And so literally, when they're throwing down the branches, they're, they're call, it's a call to war. Psalm 118 is a call to war. They're quoting all of the Psalm of 118 where their king comes into the town and this is the, the passage they would cry out to the people. And so they loved it when a guy would get on a white horse and claim himself as Messiah and take them away from the, the oppression of Rome. And so basically when they said Hosanna, what they were saying is, here's the literal translation, save us now. And, and they wouldn't just say it like a song like you see in an Easter play, they would chant it. Save us now. Save us now. And the people would work themselves up into a frenzy and they would go to battle against Rome just on the other side of the walls. And this is exactly what the disciples thought in their mind. Their thought is, Jesus, you're on a donkey. You haven't fought yet. But their real question is, where's your horse? Where's your horse? That's, that's what they're wondering. Where's the horse? We need the horse. We got, we got a, you know, the enemies across the way. You got a little donkey. You're hopping down into town. You think you're going to win any battles? 
See, that's, that's what they're crying out. Go to war. Let's fight. Let's rebel. Let's revolt. Jesus a donkey, them a horse. Isn't it amazing how you could get that in your mind? Okay, just let's think about that for a minute. So many times we get fixated on what he's not doing that we miss what he is doing. They got so fixated on what he was not doing, especially their one thing. Where's your horse? Where's your horse? You got to go to horse first. Okay? That in the process, they missed all the wonderful things God is doing. But all they could see was what he wasn't doing. This is, this is part of our fallen nature. And this is part of the flesh that's within us that, that just kind of struggles with this kind of stuff. We get fixated on what a person does wrong as opposed to what a person does right. Let's just relate that to a spouse. I wrote this in my notes here. Sometimes we can fixate on a spouse and what they're not doing, what, what they're not doing to measure up in the relationship, and they're not doing something right, that we miss all the wonderful things they are doing. And we can do that with God. We can do that with God. And we get so fixated on what He didn't do in our life and how He let us down here in this one thing and we get so fixated on that we miss all of the wonderful things God's still trying to do in our life. And that's why I say to you, this point for me was focus on what He is doing. When you go to the Scriptures, you, okay, what, this is what you are doing, but this is really what I want you to do. This is really what I want you to do. Um, now, if this story fits your situation. It is nobody related to this church or in this area, but it, it is something that happened with me, and I'll keep it. I, I want to be careful because it may have happened to you as well. There's two parents. They had three kids, and they lost one at a young age. And one day, one of the other two kids that were living, one of them came to see me. And I still remember this like it was yesterday. And they said to me this, I don't feel like I exist anymore to my parents. All mom and dad see is the child they lost and not me. You know, that, that story breaks my heart when I think about that, but sometimes because of our pain, which is understandable, but sometimes because of our pain, we miss the wonderful gifts of God that He has given us and the things He is doing in our life. But we get so fixated on what we didn't get or what we lost that we can miss the things that are around us. Look for what He is doing rather than what He is not doing. Hey, that's, that's a simple point too, but I wanted you to see it. Okay, now let me tie it together. Okay, number three, let's go on. Run toward God rather than away from God. Run toward God rather than away from God. Now, I'm, I'm kind of summarizing all of Act 3 here in this one, but it covers really chapters 11 to 16 because this is so anticlimactic. He's doing some things that just don't make sense, and the disciples couldn't handle that. The disciples could not handle this Jerusalem experience. 
because they ultimately had to go and watch Jesus suffer and die, and so that was it for them. They abandoned him. You're not who I thought you were. And so sometimes when we get disappointed, I'm going to tell you this principle is tougher to do, running toward God instead of away from God. But when we get so disappointed, sometimes we tend to pull away and we can avoid God. And we think if we avoid God, then we can avoid our disappointment or our discouragement because you let me down, God. But the truth is you still don't get away from it. You still got it. You still got it. But we think by avoiding it sometime, we can avoid the disappointment. You can't. It still goes with you. You can't outrun it. Now, here's what I've thought as I've thought this through. The irony is the one we're disappointed with, God, is the only one who can minister to the disappointment of our heart. This is the ironic thing about that. So what happens is when God doesn't show up the way we want him to, we, we can get angry, we can get bitter, we can pull away. And I want you to learn this, okay? Philip Yancey taught me this years ago, and I never forgot it. Philip Yancey said this, our pain shapes our view of God. Our pain shapes our view of God. That, that has stuck with me for years. Now, I want you to hold on to that a minute, okay? I'm, I'm, I'm saying run to him. I know, I know that's counterintuitive. It doesn't make sense. Why would you go to the one who's hurting you? Because there's something you believe in the middle that if you're being hurt or disappointed by some, uh, some unmet expectation, he's the only one you can run to to help you in time of need. It's, it's counterintuitive. It, it, it doesn't make sense to us sometimes. So let me just... Let me try to do this in a way. I felt the best way to do this was do a, a comparison study of two lives, okay? The first one is Ted Turner. Now, I, I know most of you know Ted Turner. If you don't know Ted Turner, he's in his 80s now. He has a, a $2.3 billion net worth. He was the founder of CNN and a lot of communication companies that were spun off of his company. He's been married and divorced three times. And he's very outspoken in his disdain for Christianity. What most people don't know about Ted Turner's life is when he was a child, he accepted the Lord Jesus Christ as his Savior at 10 years of age. And he even stood before the church and said, one day I'm going to grow up and I'm going to be a missionary. What happened, though, was his little sister developed a rare form of lupus, the kind that causes brain damage and constant pain, and she would sit in her room and scream for hours in pain. She died at the age of 12, and Ted Turner said in his testimony, I prayed for her every day, and she never got better. And he said, I quote, she was sick for five years before she passed. It just seemed so unfair. She hadn't done anything wrong. What had she done wrong? And I couldn't get any answers. Christianity couldn't give me any answers, so my faith got shaken somewhat. Now, that's probably the over understatement of the year to say his faith got shaken. I mean, he totally rebelled against it and went away from God. He didn't run toward God. He ran away from God. It's more than somewhat. He was shaken to the core. He once said publicly he hoped the Pope would step on a landmine. He said this, Christianity is a religion for losers. What happened? 
his pain shaped his view of God. That's what I want you to get in your heart. His pain shaped his view of God. I'm not here to disparage him. I'm not really here to tear him down. I just want you to see that his pain shaped his view of God. So when he couldn't make sense of his pain, it shaped his view to the point that he ran from God. He ran from God. He didn't run toward God with it. He said, I'm going away from God. Case study number two, Johnny Erickson Tata. For five years of her life, she ran from God. She ran from God. It's an amazing story. I, I know you're familiar with it, but let me just review a few things. At 17 years of age, she jumped off the dock of a diving board into the Chesapeake Bay, and when she did, she hit her neck and snapped it and immediately became a quadriplegic. She was completely unable to walk it. And she was completely depressed. And the doctor said, there's nothing we can do. Every day her family members would come into the hospital to visit her. And she'd tell them the same thing. Would you help me kill myself? Two years she lied in that hospital bed. Not able to do anything. They would ask her, her friends and family would ask, can we read to you? Yes, you can read to me. Read to me John 5, the story of the paralytic who couldn't get up and get down into the pool of Bethesda. And she would say, that's my promise. I'm holding on to it. I'm holding on to that promise. God's going to heal me. And over and over, she'd run that through her mind, waiting for the day she would be healed. After the hospital, she went back to their family farm where her and her sister, her sister helped uh, raise her at that point, doing therapy exercise and everything she can, but she was completely in the dumps. She saw a faith healer on TV, and she bought a ticket. He was coming into the Chesapeake Bay area. She bought a ticket, and she said, I'm going to that faith healing conference. On the way, John 5 is running through her mind, and she thought to herself, maybe he'll heal me. Maybe this is God's way. And so when she got there, there was about 60 to 70 other people in wheelchairs, and they wheeled them all down to the front right of the auditorium. And the place, it was an arena, and it was packed with this faith healer. I won't mention his name. He performed all kinds of miracles during this healing service. And the light, the camera would go over here when somebody got healed. Then it would shoot over here, and the light would come on over here. But other than that, it was dark, so you couldn't always see who was all sick. And so he's healing, and he'd say, pray for the Spirit to move in your section. And over there, Johnny was crying, saying, begging the Holy Spirit to move. In her section... She cried so loudly, as did others in their wheelchairs. And they came down, and they started taking the 60 to 70 wheelchair people out into another room because they were a distraction to everyone else. She went home, and she bawled. She picked up her Bible again, read John 5, and she imagined Jesus coming to her to heal her. Why won't you heal me, God? Why won't you heal me? As she was reading John 5, something changed inside of her. She imagined Jesus coming to her and saying to her, Johnny, what is that to you? Follow me. 
and it was the first time in her life, 11 years into her quadriplegic condition, Johnny realized God had a purpose in my pain. We all know what came of her life, her speaking, her sharing, churches, conferences. She'd say the same thing at every one. I, I don't have an answer to the why. She'd say, I'm still in chronic pain. But I know God has a reason why I'm in this situation. Now, ironically, in 2010, she's diagnosed with cancer. You'd think she'd give up. People come to say, we're praying for you. We're praying for God's mercy over you. We're praying for God's healing on your life. She said, don't pray those things. So, well, what do you want us to pray? She said this. She said, I pray, pray that I would have the wisdom not to waste all of my suffering. Do you know anybody who prays like that? I don't know why I'm going through this, but don't let me waste it. In 2011, she told her husband, I'd like to go to Israel. And so she took some of her friends, and she took her husband, and they went to Israel. And of course, they went to the Pool of Bethesda. She said, take me down in it. It's, a, it's an excavated thing. And so they took her down in it, and she sat there in the center of the pool. She began to weep. I said, why are you crying, Johnny? She said, I was just thanking God that he didn't heal me 38 years ago. Imagine that perspective. She says, God's grace has been sufficient. I would have never known that. She said, God has been my strong tower. He's been my strength. I'd have never learned that if I could have walked again. They asked her, aren't you looking forward to heaven where you're going to get your legs and your arms and everything's going to be wonderful? She said, that's not what I'm looking forward to. So what I'm looking forward to is being free from sin. <laughs> free from sin. Here's a girl who ran from God and ran back to God. Turner just ran from God. Now you're on one of two courses. You're on one of two courses in your life. You're running toward God with your pain or you're running away from God with your pain. And I'm just giving you two case studies that you can remember in your heart and your life. And here's what I want to say to you. And I'm going to close this, okay? Go to God and say this. God, I'm in a lot of pain. But I believe there is no one else to turn to but you. You are the source of all that is good and right. And even though I don't understand this, you will accomplish your purpose in my pain because there's no one else to turn to. You are my rock. You are my redeemer. That's running to God. That is running to God. Let's pray. Just with your head bowed, eyes closed, it may be that you have some pain in your life right now.
something that is an unmet expectation. And God knows and God sees. And he's asking you to run to him. As counterintuitive, as much as that doesn't make sense, that's what he's after. Just run to me. Run to me. I just wonder in this audience, someone just need to hear that today because it spoke volumes to my heart because I feel myself sometimes wanting to run away to avoid to pull away I can hear the call I can hear the call it's not a loud one it's just a soft one it's a quiet one just run to me run to me Let the Spirit of God speak to you right now. Whatever you're carrying, run to Him. Father, I come before you. These were heavy on my heart. I want to keep running to you. Sometimes I look for so many placebos, so many painkillers. Sure, teach me that. Teach me. Teach your people when you don't do what we think you should do. Lord, I lift them up to you now. Ask your grace over us. May we learn it is sufficient. In Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand to our feet. Praise team's going to come this morning and sing. I don't have any special altar call. I just want to know the altar's open. If you've got something you want to bring to God, you bring it. But it's between you and God. Let's, let's sing together.